I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today, I have a conversation with Mia Brett and Maya Contreras. They are the co-founders of the American Women's Party. It's a nonprofit organization that advocates for democratic policies, such as ensuring voting rights for all, reproductive justice, LGBTQ rights, and affordable health care for everyone. The American Women's Party was born out of Mia and Maya's desire to find a safe space and supportive online space for other Hillary supporters. During the 2016 election, Mia and Maya were subjected to online attacks and misogyny and even violent threats due to their public support for Hillary Clinton. Mia and Maya are both passionate defenders of women's rights generally, but they're particularly passionate about protecting voting rights. In fact, the American Women's Party is holding Voter Empowerment Day events and parties around the country on Monday, September 25th. But today's conversation is really, really fun. Mia and Maya made me laugh, and they're just a really good team. So without further ado, here are Mia Brett and Maya Contreras. Maya, Mia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, hi, Jen. So the American Women's Party, tell me a little bit about its background, you know, why it was founded and what your mission is. Well, we're actually the co-founders of it. The main founder is a woman named Bettina. Mia and I met actually in Mia's online group. One of those infamous underground Hillary Facebook groups. Exactly. (laughs) And it was a safe house for all its Hillary supporters. After the election, obviously, we were all pretty devastated. Mia and I, one of the things that we learned is that we wanted to create something that would give direct action to people. We realized that people wanted to get involved. They felt really helpless. So we started doing this thing called the oppo file. So Maya and I are two people who, when we get frustrated or worried, we get proactive. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we kind of took a day or two after the election to be upset and then pretty quickly (laughs) wanted to deal with the problem in front of us. And so we started something called the oppo file, which was a site that we made that was really focused on disseminating information and giving direct action items. That site was seen by one of the other American Women's Party co-founders named Melissa, who passed it on to Bettina, who wanted to start the American Women's Party. We, we realized that kind of how little people understood civics and right. how the actual process worked. And so because of that, they maybe found it easy fault in Hillary because they didn't understand the complexities of these bills the way she did. She was always proposing realistic policies that she could deliver on. And we realized, Mia and I, that because we do have a grasp on policy and how things work, we realized that if people understood policy better, if they understood the process better, maybe they would be able to pick better candidates. And so we wanted to be able to explain things. I don't want to say spoon fed because that's condescending, but we wanted to, we understand people have lives. Okay, me and I don't have lives. No, this is our life. This is our life. Yeah, we're super nerds. Yeah, so (laughs) we wanted to be the people that we would read the articles, we would consult with experts, we would distill it down. So that's what we did with the oppo file. And I think that's what Bettina was attracted to. And she wanted this to be, she, like me and I saw the, a massive amount of misogyny throughout the political process of this election. She wanted a women's party and I think she wanted it to be third party. And me and I were like, oh, no. Um, Maya and I are very much born, raised inside the Democratic Party. And of course, we have frustrations right now. A lot of people do, but we didn't want to leave the party. I was raised completely, you know, by Jewish intellectual leftists. If I ever did anything other than vote Democrat, I think I'd be disowned. (laughs) Um, But of course, we're seeing some problems. And so we really want the American Women's Party, one of its functions to make the Democratic Party better, to take the frustrations that people are having and bring them to the Democratic Party and come up with solutions so that we don't have to leave the party, but we can still improve the problem. 
Yes. And I am, as a black Latina who was raised <laughs> in a hippie family, yes. <laughs> um, we, I mean, I, I think pragmatic, it's a bad name, but we have seen with our backgrounds how difficult progress is and these steps forward. I think we were very taken aback by people who were just like, well, you guys aren't asking for enough. You just need to burn the system down and start over again. And for me and I were like, okay. Yeah, we were like, that's, that's, we know what that looks like. That doesn't turn out well. Oh, yeah. And um, it's also kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's something that's a, it's an insult to so many people that literally shed blood in this country to, to get rights, to get equal rights who lost their lives or, you know, or defended this country to, to think that we should have everything and we should have it now. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call out someone like someone like Susan Sarandon. She was one of those voices that were incredibly hurtful during this election because she can afford to say, let's burn it all down. Let's watch it burn. And she can do that from the safety of her very palatial houses while people are literally being deported now out of this country. People who are paying into the system, who take care of their families, who take care of each other. And now she's saying, oh, we need to help them. You know, you could have helped them with your vote. And so I was really, Mia and I were beside ourselves with the selfishness of so many people who claimed to be working on all of our behalf by saying, oh, we should be asking more. You guys aren't brave enough. <laughs> or, just, or that we weren't asking for more because we just love Wall Street and corporations. Corporate you know? shells. Yeah, corporate shells. Every playground insult they could throw our way, they did. Yeah, I mean, you're talking to two women who have been working in politics, working in advocacy, probably since they were old enough to know what that was. Yeah, yeah. And we're being told that we're not asking for enough, we're not doing enough, that we're just corporate shells. And, you know, it, it gets frustrating and tiring. Like, I was planning to be a history professor before this election, almost done with my PhD. And, and I have taught history classes and Maya's a storyteller. And we really understand the work that's gone into it. And I think there was just this element of watching the election and then watching what happened after of people just not understanding the history of this country and not understanding that women had to chain themselves to the White House to get the right to vote yeah. or forgetting what the civil rights movement looked like and yeah. people being arrested and kind of the importance of the small step and the incremental progress. Yeah, there was also a lot of racism and misogyny in all this too. I found that a lot of these people that were talking to me and I about wanting to support Sanders or Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, a lot of them, it was very interesting. These These are people that were critical of Obama, so critical of him. And I have not heard them say a peep about Trump. But they were very critical about a Harvard-educated, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, guy. Um, and uh, geez, I wonder what the relation is to that. You know, I mean, the the racism and misogyny was dripping out of all of their mouths. And so, me and I aren't putting up with it anymore. You know, we're calling them out. We know what they're about. We're not trying to win them over, which, by the way, we think is a massive mistake for the Democratic Party to do. We don't need to win them over. We need to circumvent them and we need to register more people and we need to make voting easier. So those are solutions to the Democratic Party, not bending over backwards to people that regularly say misogynistic and racist You, you make a really good point. I was mentioning to someone recently about 
you know, the, the factions that are developing on the left in the Democratic Party and on the far left, you know, um, the factions that are developing between, you know, those who say, you know, we should require perfection or that, you know, we want to be anti-establishment. And, you know, I, I agree with you in that I think that, that what's lost with a lot of people like Susan Sarandon, for instance, is yeah. that that the understanding of the struggle that, you know, a lot of people have gone through. And I think that if you're in a marginalized group, if you're a woman mm. of color, for instance, or if you're a Jewish woman, but you know, there, there are lots of people in this group who have never had healthcare, yeah. who've never had yeah. health insurance, you know, who are just a few generations removed from people who didn't have the right to vote. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, requiring perfection or requiring a perfect candidate or, you know, burning everything down, that's a luxury that a lot of people don't have yeah. and a risk that they don't want to take. Yeah, definitely. Right? And that's something that I that's something that I think is yeah. that was lost in the past election. Um, I also think we shouldn't underestimate other things that were happening, like people like Roger Stone. There were also what's happened with Russia. We have to remember that we have proof now of interference. And I think part of that was Roger Stone creating narratives on Facebook, on Twitter, that people were kind of easily duped into believing, spreading rumors, interfering with Russia, with Guccifer. (laughs) He took it to another level. Some of it is creating third parties that don't need to be there and that pull voters away. That's something that Roger Stone had uh, expertise on. I mean, this is on Netflix. You guys can watch it. Right. Um, I would recommend watching it because... All of the tactics he talked about working in the past, they worked this election. We do need to address what happened with Facebook and Twitter because this could happen again for 2018. Um, And it's something we're incredibly concerned about. Yes, our first initiative is voting. Our next initiative is talking to these CEOs and people that run Twitter and Facebook because we want to know what do you plan on doing? It's clear that Facebook is not taking responsibility. Well, and Maya and I were really on the front lines of this online harassment that everyone talked about yeah. and these false narratives. We I got mean, death threats. Oh, rape threats, death threats. I yeah. got told guns were being named after me. Yeah. Honestly, that's the one that bothered me the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean, even forget the death threats, which are horrible, but I felt like one of my, I had an extra full-time job combating these bizarre stories that, you know, one of the most important things that we did in this underground group was really to learn the actual history of these candidates, learn the actual history of bills so that when people would say, I don't want to repeat the bizarre lies, but we'd have the facts, we'd have the articles, we'd have the links to prove what the actual truth was. Yeah. And if so much time is being spent just combating bizarre propaganda that takes away from what election is supposed to be about, which is actually talking about current policy proposals. And that was a big thing that happened on Facebook that was a huge distraction and really helped Trump. Oh, my God. It absolutely helped Trump. I mean, it was very bizarre that people were latching on so quickly to these lies. They were easily digestible, easily shared, easily to create outrage. We spent a lot of time. At one point, we were just like, you know what? Forget this. We don't have time to talk to these people. And turns out most of them were trolls. Yeah. They were not even right, real yeah. people or paid people. And again, we're aware of it now, but who knows what they're going to try to have in store for 2018. We've already seen them try to say horrible misogynistic things about Senator Harris. She hasn't even declared candidacy yet. Right. So I was going to just backtrack and ask you about, you mentioned earlier, you wanted to create, you know, before the election, you wanted to create a safe house, right? Is that, was that because you were Hillary supporters? Yes. What was that about? Yes. I started one of those infamous underground Hillary (laughs) groups that many people talk about and were part of, and that 
you know, kind of one of the reasons why people thought there weren't public Hillary supporters is that we literally were speaking in private because we had to, because the harassment was so bad. And so I've always, you know, been a loud mouth and like, I don't have a problem speaking (laughs) publicly. People can say whatever they want, but not everybody feels that way. A friend of mine and I, I guess a year and a half ago during the primaries, were getting frustrated because we couldn't say anything publicly without being harassed. And we decided to start an underground Hillary group for millennials, especially since that was a group that the narrative said were not supportive of Hillary. Initially, when we started it, we called it like the feminist bat signal so that if someone was being harassed, they had a group of people (laughs) that could come help them. And we really wanted it to be a space that both was safe to talk in private but also provided support if you wanted to speak publicly. That we really wanted it to be a place that helped women use their voices, though we have um, men in our group as well. And so that's really what the group initially provided. And now it's really exciting because it's developed a little bit into an incubator of grassroots groups. We have the American Women's Party that Maya and I started. There's also a PAC called Bringing Nasty that was started (laughs) by um, Candace Eisen. Bringing Nasty Pack. Bringing Nasty Pack, yes, excuse me. Um, yeah, that was started by uh, Candace Austin, uh, Laura Zlatos, and David Wachkowski, which is a pack to help defend female candidates from these kinds of misogynistic attacks. And so that's kind of what the group has now turned into. And it really shows, I think, what supportive spaces can accomplish. Right. You know, I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, I kind of felt that the misogynistic tends just kind of rising throughout the throughout the 2016 election for anyone who supported Hillary. I mean, have you ever seen anything like that before Mm -hmm. in past elections? I just it's interesting that I I mean, um, you know, it, it caused me to look back on the history of all women that had been running Barbara Jordan, uh, Farrar, uh, Geraldine Farrar. You'll just see the misogynistic stuff that guys said willy nilly. <laughs> so that's always been there. I think these women, like Hillary, I think she understood and knew this. I mean, this is a woman that was told. You know, she needs to like bake cookies, you know, uh, to show her feminine side. And she was in politics at that time where she did kind of have to play a little bit of that game. And you could tell that she was like disgusted with it, like everybody should be in that position. But people didn't understand that she had to do those things. You know, I I think that one of the things that people misunderstood about this election was what people had been, we've talked about this already, but what people dealt with, you know, it's like Martin Luther King was working with uh, Rustin Bayard and uh, Rustin was a gay black man and he wanted uh, Dr. King to include him uh, and gay black men and I have a dream and he had to compromise and say no we can't do this at this time so people don't understand when they were like well Hillary did this or she did this in the past I'm not forgiving of everything that every politician has done in the past but there's also this strangeness of we're not looking at things in context at the time. So I think that Hillary was very aware of some of the misogyny. I don't think, just like we didn't think, it was going to pour off the page like this. For men and women. I mean, we were really getting it from women, too. So I think that that was that was tough. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think maybe Hillary expected it more for herself, but maybe didn't expect how much it was going to go against her supporters. That seemed to be a thing she commented on. Maybe she expected it against her, but she didn't expect quite the length mm-hmm. that people would go to. But I do think that Hillary, of all people, was prepared for a lot of dirty tricks against she, her. She said it too in her book. I didn't get to read it yet. Only I have not read it yet. Yeah. Going to a book signing next week. There you go. She did say from the excerpt that I read that she wanted to run a traditional campaign. She just didn't realize that at this time that was someone like Trump 
the gloves were off and they were going to do literally anything. The, the amount of resentment that all these people had for a black man being president and then a woman right afterwards was just too much for some of this country to bear. And Tanazi Coates basically said it, the first white president, when, you know, he basically said this was a group of people that really clung to this idea that they're an endangered species. Hillary was a brunt of that. So I think all of us underestimated the searing resentment what really frustrated me and I was how the media picked up on this narrative in the wrong way. Oh, this is economic anxiety. Yeah. No, no, it's just racism. It's sexism. Well, and like, I mean, we talk about, you know, we talked about lies that we were trying to combat. I mean, since the election, it's continued. One that just will not seem to die is that Hillary lost the working class which she did not. Hillary right, won the working right. class. Yeah. I, if this is the thing is too, I, I've been talking to a couple of friends that um, are journalists. They're more on the liberal side, obviously. But I said, is it laziness? What kind of narrative is going on here? That, I mean, look at all the stuff that's coming out about Russia now. It's dripping out everywhere. And it's so clear that all of this was happening during the election, but you just picked emails. I mean, it's just, it's just astounding to me. And the thing is, these reporters had access to all this information. They could have, if they had investigated. Some people did. Kurt Eichenwald was doing some great reporting for Newsweek. And we were reading this. We were. And sharing it. Yeah. And we were like, why isn't this a bigger story? Well, now we see it is a massive story. One of the things that we do want to have is have panel discussions with media and how they are choosing these type of narratives when they really miss the boat on a, I mean, Watergate pales in comparison with all this. They cling to two narratives emails and economic anxiety that the Democrats just don't understand. The poor working class who they think are just white men. They don't think of white women. They definitely don't think of working class black men and women and Latino women. And they don't think any of those people are working class. And one of the things that I noticed that was happening also is that, you know, us as constituents in the public, we didn't really hold the media accountable for that, right? Like, I think some of the diehard, you know, Hillary supporters were kind of frustrated with the, yeah. the focus on the emails, right? But we didn't we didn't use our power and our voices to steer them in the, the direction of did. policy. I think we really tried. I, I think we yelled tried. at I, these people yeah. on Twitter, like all the time. I just yelled at Chris yeah. Eliza yesterday. I said, what blackmail do you yeah. have on CNN and the Washington Post that allows you to have a paying job in journalism? He has the worst hot takes. I will say that to his face. By the way, anyone that I insult, I would say it to their face, okay? Because it is astounding, yeah. too. I said saying astounding a lot, but it's because that's how I feel. But um, yeah, we, we did try. It, it didn't matter. It did they. Yeah, they, I don't know who they were listening to. I think we did try. And I there's a Facebook group called Wise Women for Hillary. And they wrote op-eds that got published about the problems with coverage. You know, we called out journalists. We tried to share stories and get them more traction that we felt were more responsible. You know, I'm not really sure what else is the public we can do like we can cancel subscriptions but there's one bit of success that i noticed so you, you were talking earlier about kamala harris because she's one of the the yeah. candidates that's been mentioned for possibly 2020 right yeah. and as soon as her name started to enter the sphere of possible candidates she she was attacked right and she's yes. probably been attacked attacked before that but you know the chorus started to get louder and then Brittany mm. Brittany Cooper, you know, the journalist Brittany Cooper wrote an op-ed for, I think it was Cosmo Online, Cosmopolitan of all places, yep. Yep, online, yep. in defense of Kamala Harris, right? Yeah. Yes. And that got a lot of attention for some reason. Is I don't know if it's because of Brittany's public profile or yeah. was it because, you know, it was on the heels of, you know, Hillary Clinton's new book or right before her book came out. So for some reason, 
that's gotten attention. And after Hillary Clinton, of course, lost the election and after she came out with her book, the media is mm. now paying attention to, you know, possibly their own role. I think it's really interesting to see articles written yeah. about the media, by the media, about their role. <laughs> They're so incredibly defensive. Yes. Yeah, they are. About it. Um, Maggie from um, New York Times. Maggie Haberman. Yeah, and uh, Glenn Thrush. Yeah. Anytime they got called out for it, they were so defensive about it. You see them like an echo chamber it's like the kid in school that got the new hot whatever and then everybody else needed to have the same thing they they echo chambered with each other i also want to point out something that you brought up about an article in cosmo and that i actually found before the election as well some of the most responsible coverage i saw was in women's magazine. People are talking about Teen Vogue now. I saw in Cosmo before the election, there was actually a spread maybe the month before that compared the policy positions of Hillary and Trump. Right. I didn't see too many things like that in more, you know, quote unquote, traditional political media, but it was in Cosmo and Teen Vogue has been doing great coverage since the election. And I believe a bit before Elle magazine has had some good stuff. You know, women's magazines are dismissed. They're not going to be seen as places to go for responsible political coverage. And in my opinion, before the election, it had some of the most responsible coverage. And there were some other articles like the one you just mentioned, they just didn't gain as much traction. Yeah, right. They don't have the reach of MSNBC or Politico or CNN, right? And that's unfortunate. And the reach they do have is dismissed. Right. The women who read it are not considered serious. Yeah. I think they're changing that. They are changing that. I'm just curious because I don't know what their demographics are, but you would think that this group, millennials, the, the the generation that you're in, right? Which, you know, generally I'm not, I'm had a Gen a, Xer. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, 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 She's I'm a, a millennial. Gen Xer too. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm an old millennial, just putting it out there. <laughs> but I mean, I would imagine that, A, I don't know what their demographics are for those magazines, but I would imagine that they're probably women in our age group, right? Yeah. Which mm. begs the question, why were those women so hostile and resistant to the idea of supporting a woman or resistant resistant to the idea of supporting Hillary specifically. I think it was white women above. Yeah, yes. as, we have the demographics on that because 90% of black women. 94%. 94. We voted for Hillary. We voted for Hillary. In the primary as well. Exactly. <laughs> so we got, we're good. But, uh, but Jewish women as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I, it was white women. And, and, you know, there have been studies that show that women get more radical and liberal as they get older, that as they experience more sexism, as they kind of maybe lose some privileges that you have when you're young, that they get more liberal. I mean, we, we have some studies to show that. And I think things like that um, relate to it. And I also think maybe forgetting or not viscerally knowing all the steps that came before. I will say this. I have one friend, you know her, yes. who voted for Jill, she said Jill Stein, right? Did she actually say Jill Stein? I know. I think it was. It wasn't Hillary. So I think it was Jill Stein. <laughs> it was one person and then uh, one of my relatives voted for Trump. No. And um, yeah. Sorry. It's my, <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's my mother-in-law. I'm going to call her out because I love her. I love her. And by the way, both of these women severely regret their vote. And I said to both of them, you know, yeah, I mean, to me, Hillary doesn't forgive you. I forgive you. But we're still screwed. So thanks. You know what I mean? I mean, like, let's be honest, right? It's like, I, I mean, it's okay that they made mistakes, but they had me to talk to before this election. I, I wasn't condescending to them or rude to them. I went over the issues with them. But again, both of them regret. Okay. I don't think my mother-in-law, she's traditionally conservative. I don't think she would have voted for Hillary. But she certainly wouldn't have voted for Trump now. And I think my friend, if she had to do it over again, she would vote for Hillary. So, you know, I, I mean, that's what's tough because now we have this uphill battle for 2018. And, and you know, we see all these people who, did, who marched, get them 
to the polls and get them to vote. And not just in presidential elections. Yeah, I just voted for my uh, councilwoman. So in my, I live in District 2. I, I live in the East Village. And my husband and I voted and we were like, God, there's nobody here. And then we looked at the numbers, I think in total... Of all New York, 400,000 people voted in total. And we have, yeah, Yeah. and we have 3.5, we have 300, we have 3 million Democrats and only a half a million Republicans registered here. (laughs) That's a horrible number. The fact that 400,000 out of 3.5 million voted for local elections that are totally critical is very upsetting and it worries me for 2018. Yeah, that's upsetting, but New York went to went to Hillary, right? I mean, 100%. Yes, yes, yes. easily. But I need them to show up during midterms. We uh, we need them, you know what I mean? Because if we don't take back the house all the initiatives that we want aren't going to go anywhere yeah and i'm from a swing district on long island and this was very frustrating and it actually it went for um obama twice and it went for trump this election which just hurt it hurt my heart so much but um one of the reasons was because the democratic congressional candidate was not good she didn't put work into it enough. She didn't have a gut enough media. There were a lot of reasons. Local people didn't, local Democrats didn't come out for the election because Hillary was always going to win the state. And the congressional candidate didn't bring candidates, didn't bring constituents out. And so, yeah, New York went for Hillary but there's a lot more to this. And the district I'm from not only has a Republican congressperson right now, his name is Lee Zeldin, but it's a Republican who votes with Trump on everything. And our district is a swing district. You know, this is New York one. It's Eastern Long Island. The district is not as conservative as that is showing, but people didn't show up to vote. And so that's who's representing us right now. How much of that is, is gerrymandering or redistricting where you guys hit there in New Jersey and New York? New York, New York doesn't have too bad a gerrymandered map. It really is more that people didn't come out to vote, at least in the district I'm from on Long Island. New York actually, luckily, does not really suffer from a lot of voter suppression, particularly downstate. Voter suppression is a bigger issue upstate. Um, And for a couple reasons. One thing that happens with New York, and this is true in other states, is that there are a lot of prisons upstate and the prisoners can't vote, but their population is used for the census count. And so it ups the political power of more rural conservative areas. I don't want people to get too hung up on gerrymandering. I I agree. Because benefits, it's benefited Democrats in the past as well. More benefits Republicans, but especially now, now, the main issue is voter suppression, period. And, you know, this is the first election without that we had without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. And they have, uh, they, Republicans, they have, (laughs) let's call them out, Republicans. They've managed to suppress the disability community, the transgender community, African Americans. They've managed to... Women. Women. They are really targeting marginalized groups or any group that votes Democrat. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, college students. This is where we really need to focus. And, and, and me and I have said this the entire time we've known each other. Democrats, their main issue, the main thing they should focus on right now, not slogans. It should be Voting. Voting. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. Because they can take up gerrymandering. They can explain that to people, but they need to explain what Chris Kobach and his voter quote unquote integrity commission is doing. I mean, they're harvesting votes right now. They're literally trying to rig 2018 as we speak, like right now. They're spending between a half a million and a million dollars of taxpayers' money to steal your vote. And really, people should be pouring out in the streets protesting this because this will 
silence everyone. And I wouldn't be surprised if, what is the, our election 2018? Is, is it November 8th? I don't remember. But the day after. Don't be surprised if there is a thud of us not getting back the House. Because they're trying to steal our vote right now. They've already managed to do it. 16% of the African-American vote was suppressed this last election. What did they say? It was almost 3 million members of the disability community were um, unable yeah. to vote. You know, so they, we've got real, they, we, 40% of uh, trans people were harassed to the polls. These are real statistics of, of them managing to suppress the vote. Google Maps did this real-time voter problem map across the United States and all the swing states. It, the number were blew blew up, so we have a real problem. We're, me and I, with doing this voter empowerment day on September twenty fifth, right. we're trying to start ringing the bell. Not just that day. That's to kick off two thousand and eighteen. Right. We're trying to explain to people, you guys, this is dire, y'all. This is dire. You know, and something we really want to do with Voter Empowerment Day, we don't just want to educate, although we want to educate a lot. We also want to say while we're fighting these voter suppression laws and gerrymandering, we want to help people vote within the existing laws. Look, voter ID laws disenfranchise people, period. But if we push initiatives to help people get IDs, then those people can vote. If we educate people that provisional ballots are available and that they should always fill one out, even if they don't have an ID, then that might get a few more votes counted. So we really want to empower people to make sure they vote even under existing laws that are working to suppress them. Yeah, we're trying to help them hurdle these obstacles that they're throwing. But we're also trying to win back the House so that we can change this so we can have automatic voting registration. But we know we can't do this until we win seats locally on the House level. Obviously, we'd love to win back the Senate. Though I will say also there are some great organizations like the ACLU and the Brennan Center for Justice that are challenging these laws through the courts and they're having some successes. The North Carolina law was struck down. There's a few other that are going through the courts. And so I also don't want people to feel like there's no hope here. There's a lot of court decisions that are ruling against voter suppression. Right. So what role do you see the American Women's Party playing between now and the elections in 2018? I mean, do you think it's a realistic expectation to kind of overturn enough of these voter suppression laws to, you know, win back the House or the Senate? I mean, I hope so. but, But what are your thoughts? I mean, we're super excited that Brennan Center and ACLU and some other organizations, I think Legal Defense Fund is also challenging some. We're very excited that they're challenging these laws, but we unfortunately can't do much for that, though we can educate which is important. We want to work in tandem with all these groups. We want to show that it's not about us. It's about us imbuing the work of other organizations. It's about us working in tandem with other organizations like Emily's List and so on. We are part of this, I don't know, I would say liberal group of people that want to resistance resistance that are working together to try to accomplish something. Yes, we're, we're very loud, me and I. Um, And um, we've managed to attract some really wonderful people. And part of this is, yes, uh, online, but the next step is with people, getting them educated about voter suppression issues, helping them to educate their friends and their coworkers and their neighbors to let them know that they have all the access and materials that me and I do. All of this is accessible to them. We want them just to be participatory, you know, citizens. I think what the American Women's Party really wants to bring to the table is we want to build off the work of other organizations that Emily's List, She Should Run, There's No Way I'm Going to Remember Every Awesome Organization. You know, there's a lot of organizations that are doing really important work right now. And what the American Women's Party wants to do is we want to focus on the voters, that we want to educate and empower the people who are affected 
by policy. It's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to feel like there's just too much information out there. And so we really want our job to be more focused on the voters and amplify the organizations that are working to elect the candidates. And so what we want our organization to do is to say, hey, maybe you didn't realize how this issue directly impacts women. Maybe you didn't realize how this issue directly impacts people of color, people in the disability community, the LGBT community. But we need to think about this. We need to think about how single payer will ensure health care for women and LGBT people and others and not just kind of cross our fingers and hope that everything will be included. I mean, that's one of the things that we try to do too, is we do try to connect the dots and how these things all work to affect you in your own personal life. People's values are different. We recognize that. But what people, we really want them to understand is all these issues do affect everybody. I mean, we tried to show how the issue in Flint yes. is, is uh, let me go ahead and explain. Oh, <laughs> um, so something that we're very excited about with the work that we do with American Women's Party is we want to show how all these issues connect and how important really thinking about intersectionality. And for those who don't know what that is, it's understanding the way race and gender and class all intersect, but how that really affects issues. But Flint is an example of an environmental issue that is hurting people right this second that we need to fix. We realize a lot of people don't see how the dots connect. And Mia and I spend a lot of time looking at that. And we do see the connection to these things. And we do see which policies would work. I mean, not only that, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are some wonderful policies that have been proposed by some of our favorite legislators. I mean, uh, John Lewis, you know, Representative John Lewis came up with the Voter Empowerment Act, which makes it easier to vote. It hasn't passed. It was introduced into the Senate. It was introduced into the House. And so we named our day Voter Empowerment Day after this act because we want to draw attention to it. Uh, maybe we should support it. <laughs> it's always going to be a long answer with me and Maya. That's a that's a long answer to to really what the American Women's Party wants to be doing and bringing to people. Should we do it like <laughs> connect the dot? Voters <laughs> moving forward. We can do it like that. Yeah, we, we definitely need our little soundbite. We want to empower and educate voters. What, what we have our for? We say <laughs> it's listening, it's empowering, educating, educating, and direct action. And direct action. High five. This is our for. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to, so you mentioned John Lewis. I was going to go back again and thinking about like the trolls that you had to combat during the 2016 election. I was thinking back to the 2016 election and I think John Lewis, when he came out in support of Hillary, I don't know if you remember that moment and he was attacked. That was one of the the most hurtful moments for me because I I just finished watching Selma probably for the third time. And, you know, that that just was kind of the highlight of, you know, some of these factions that were developing on the left for me. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm sure Maya has thoughts too. Um, I definitely do, which is that something that seemed to happen during this election is that people, people like John Lewis, people like Gloria Steinem, Madeleine Albright, I I mean, the list could go on, people who have their own resumes and should have benefits of the doubt in their activism work. Dolores Huerta. Dolores Huerta was, yeah, that was a huge example, were attacked simply for supporting Hillary rather than people taking a step back and saying, oh, wait, these people really know what they're doing. Maybe I should listen to them. That it was more important to dislike Hillary than it was to listen to people like Dolores Huerta and John Lewis, who, in my opinion, if those two people are on the same page about something, it's going to take a lot for me to disagree with yeah. them because yeah. I trust them and, and they, you know, they're older than me. They have the activism that I, I, you know, it's almost an amount of hubris to think that we can know better than these people who have been fighting for decades. 
Yeah, I I mean, again, I think a lot of this comes down to racism and misogyny. I, I think that, um, and that's to me is where it's not complicated. You know, I, I think that there are a lot of people that really don't think they're sexist or racist. And then they always say, but, and then proceed to say something racist and sexist. Yeah, I I was hurt by it, but in a lot of ways, again, you're a woman, we're women, I'm a woman of color, um, and um, me as a Jewish woman. woman of color. You're You're a woman of color. (laughs) I can't see you. I just see your name right there. Um, You didn't know. I didn't know. Now I know. But we are very aware already. Of, of racism and sexism. We didn't need the memo. We got it like when we were five or something. We're yeah. like, wait a second, <laughs> wait a second, you know? So, but, but to me, the amount of uh, just massive disrespect for these icons and they're icons for a reason. They've earned the, that benefit of the doubt. They've earned yeah. that status. As to me, we're, we were just kind of in this new territory where, People just felt like we'll just deal with it. There's so much hurt and a frustration on some people's. I, I don't know what it is. My father-in-law is a really prominent psychologist. I've been asking him so many questions about it. I'm like, why do they do this? You know, and he basically said they feel that their values are in such a way that their values are the are the prominent ones, or they're the right ones, and and that we're wrong, and there's not a lot of room, and that we saw a lot of that on the extreme right and left. Two that worked in tandem with with one another that didn't want to compromise. They didn't even like the word compromise. Right, Uh, it was a dirty word. It was a dirty word used against people, which I think is just bizarre because it's like you know I'm a married woman and you can't get married if you don't believe in compromise. You know what I mean? It's just like to me this idea of like being an adult. uh, There's nothing wrong with with compromise to me because you're valuing your value in somebody else's and trying to work together and that got completely lost and we're seeing what it looks like not to have compromise in the white house there's a lot of paternalism there right so i think that like yeah yeah. people of color and women are brought to the table as long as they're saying the right things right yeah (laughs) yes and and they're endorsing the right people but as soon as you know the people in power think that you're saying the wrong thing you don't know what you're doing then they have to kind of guide you back to the right path and right yeah Completely. And I think that that that's a huge problem with kind of like the tokenism that, you know, well, I'd vote for a woman, but not Hillary. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, and and the amount of times I've heard people say, I can't be sexist. I voted for Jill Stein. Yeah. It's just that's not how this works. So I want to ask about I want to move on and ask about the the main reason you're here, actually, which is your voter empowerment day parties, which are on Monday, September 25th. So if someone wants to attend one of those parties, what should they do? We have, I believe, five events around the country that are public, that are public on our Facebook page for the American Women's Party. So, but I just want to mention the AmericanWomen'sParty.com. That's the website. And from so there, right, you can link to... Yeah, yeah so ahead. right now, um, AmericanWomen'sParty.com, that's like our placeholder site. It has all the pamphlets on there, the state pamphlets, our voter empowerment toolkit. But in October, we moved to AmericanWomen'sParty.org because we are a nonprofit. Um you can go to AmericanWomen'sParty.org now and our placeholders there. You can email us from there. So we're a .com for the rest of September. So what's what's happening on Voter Empowerment Day? What should people expect? So we really want to make it something that's educational, but also fun, that's encouraging you to get involved. So I can tell you the one that we're holding in New York, which is at Von Bar in Manhattan. We're going to be speaking, Maya and I, because we like that. Yeah. Um, and handing out pamphlets and information. And we really want people to start getting involved as part of their daily lives. We don't want it to be this thing that takes all this effort that they have to do, but that it's part of their routine. It's part of their day. And so I know the Las Vegas event, they've put together a great list of performers. There's also a public event in Chicago and Boston and oh, in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, yes, yes. Um, and so we really kind of want to start 
these communities, this community building with direct action, with education, you know, one person tells five people about voter suppression issues and those five people tell another five people and on and on. Yeah, we want to create a wave effect with this. We, To us, this is the beginning of the conversation. If you go to our Facebook page, you can see a friend of ours, Sherry, did an ASL video explaining uh, Voter Empowerment Day and also how it affects the disability community. We made a comic video because voter suppression is hilarious, um, which is also <laughs> on our Facebook page. We I just saw that video. It's pretty funny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, we, we just want people to understand that just showing up is half of, of this. We just wanted to explain to them what voter suppression actually is. We want to show what they can do to help stop it. And we want them to make a plan uh, to register people, to drive people to the polls, to help them get their IDs. We're trying to web all these other organizations together to work with them, as we said, in tandem with them or imbue the work they're already doing or augment the work they're already doing. The main thing is that we get people to show up in 2018 and 2020 and every election they're eligible to vote in. That's what we want to do. Very simply, we want people to feel this idea of voting is their responsibility, not just to themselves, but to their community. I think some people when they've seen what's happening with DACA, their heart really is breaking about it because it is heartbreaking. But we want them to understand that they have a responsibility in it. Even if they're like, no, I don't. Or whatever. I just use a southern accent. I can do that. I'm from the South. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I'm from the South, Georgia. Okay. So if I use that, I am not making fun of Southerners. I'm trying to explain to my Southern friends, we need to show up too. Okay. <laughs> a liberal Southerner, which is, you know, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of us, by the way. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I want, but I, and, and that's another thing too, as a side note, um, I was talking to a lot of liberal Democrats in small places like in the panhandle of Florida, smaller places, yeah. and they were saying, we want the Democratic Party to hear us. We're here. Are they going to support us? And one of the what, things that we wanted to with the American Women's Party is to reach into all of these areas and say, you know, we hear you and we want to amplify your voices. We don't care what part of the country you live in. We're all American. Yeah. And I think that's why we got so irritated during this election and all the past elections when they try to say things like well we're part of the real america good lord that is ridiculous yeah, what is all that? of us are a part of the real america immigrants are part of the real america no matter where you are if you are showing up buying something that pays taxes that pays into america so, yeah, we, we want to amplify the voices that we feel are maybe not being paid attention to. Well, and that was something that was actually really stark for me that I made a lot of calls during the primary for Hillary. And one of my favorite things about it was talking to the Democratic voters in places like North Carolina. And I would get on the phone with them and these primary elections are one of the only times that these Democratic voters are really paid attention to because they actually have power for a moment. You know, the votes of North Carolina, the votes of South Carolina, the Democratic voters of Texas are actually important in a Democratic primary. I also want people to stop with this idea that one, that there's two Americas as, as far as helps I want to say it helps Republicans. Yes. It helps them to say, you guys, they don't understand us in these elite cities. You know, we have poverty in the South and we have poverty up North. We have black Southerners. Uh, Latino Southerners. And so we have to stop 
with this idea that that we're divided geographically. We have Republicans uh, in New York. Believe me, we have a lot of conservatives up here. We too. even let them come to bars with us. Sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> Not all the time. Not all the time. Sometimes. But I mean, this idea too, that this creative division thing, something that the whole, uh, like this infiltration of the DNC and, and what Russia did, part of it was to create division. It benefits. Me and me are not interested in division. We're not interested in trying to uh, power up with racist, sexist people. We're not interested in that, but we're saying that we're not interested in division with people that are wanting to improve roads, improve access to education and health care. We believe that there are people who across the board who are conservative, independent. They don't want to drive on a road that has big potholes. They want to make sure their children are safe when they're at school. We have things that we all have in common. American Women's Party, I think we have a sense of humor. We understand (laughs) that we're in a very strange time right now. We're trying to make things better for all of us. And we want the Democratic Party to know that we're here to strengthen it, that we're the majority in the Democratic Party. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not, yeah, we're not on the sidelines. You align yourself specifically with the Democratic Party on your on your website. And That's a lot of the purpose. groups that you want. <laughs> yeah, I figured that. But it was so some of the groups that you want to work with, let's take Emily's list, for instance, and a lot of the mm-hmm. groups for women that have popped up after 2016 mm-hmm. are nonpartisan groups. And I kind of mm-hmm. understand why they would be nonpartisan. I guess yeah. the idea is that the broader the umbrella, the more power the group has. So yeah. why did you choose to, to not be nonpartisan? Oh gosh, I, uh, I have, lot, but that's yeah, a we have lots of answers to that. Um, I think for <laughs> one thing, because we're, we're partisan. I yeah. mean, you know, it's a very simple answer. Maya and I are partisan. We believe in the Democratic Party. I think that there's value to being nonpartisan. I think there's definitely a place for it yeah. in organizations, depending on exactly. Oh, registering registering voters should be nonpartisan, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for us, I think particularly in the wake of this election, being nonpartisan wasn't an option. Maybe if it was a different election, we would have. But right, right now, it doesn't feel like we've got two parties. One believes in smaller government and one believes in larger government. And we have non-negotiables. Yes. But right now, what it feels like is that we're fighting for survival. We're fighting for our lives. We're fighting for the lives of marginalized people. We're fighting for reproductive rights. We're fighting for dreamers. We're fighting for, you know, immigration. We're fighting for trans people to be able to be in the military or to end. One party is interested in that and one party is Exactly. I mean, let's face it. I mean, we wish those things weren't partisan. I mean, you know, there are things that we're like, why does, why should that be a partisan thing for a woman to have a choice over her own body? So because of that, this is why we are partisan. And the thing is the Democratic Party does have a wonderful infrastructure. Um, We believe that it has such a great infrastructure. We want to win elections. Our our country is a two-party system, at least right now. It is. We want to win elections. We want, in our opinion, that's the only way to fix a lot of these problems. And and again, I don't think pragmatists should have a bad word. I think we're just (laughs) logic-based. You know? Logical. We like truth. We like facts. Results are nice. Results. Yeah. These are all things I thought a lot more people liked, you know? Uh, We like to source things. We like to consult with experts in their field. I mean, we are proud to be part of the Democratic Party and this idea that, oh, they don't have a direction. By the way, that's a lazy narrative that the media has said. Does the Democratic Party not have a narrative? News at nine. They keep saying that we have plenty of narrative. We've accomplished so much over the last couple of decades. Honestly, this this is going to sound condescending. I'm a little condescending. It's fine. It's a little... Uh, (laughs) I think people need to grow up. I need the, I need them to grow the hell up and say, you know, you don't get hundreds of years on this earth. Life is incredibly short and you should be wanting to make life better 
for those around you and for the next generation. And to me, that's logical. That's not a liberal thing. That is a logical thing. I mean, thing. the thing is, there's some, mm-hmm. of the, there's some things, and why I'm on the fence about this, there's some some things that just can't be gapped, right? Like reproductive justice, right? Yes. right. Conservatives generally fall on the opposite side. And that's just yeah. something that I personally am not willing to, to, to risk oh, in, in totally healthcare not. for all. No. Yeah. yeah. You know, also in regards to your earlier comment about the media or the assertion that the Democrats don't have a narrative. Um, when I hear them talk about the lack of a narrative on the Democratic side, that's probably one of the most bothersome things I hear because, you know, me, I can personally rattle off, you know, five things off the top of my head that Democrats stand for. $15 yes. minimum wage, reproductive mm-hmm. justice, equal pay, you know, health care mm-hmm. for everyone. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's either disingenuous or laziness yeah. as to why they aren't reporting these things out to constituents. I will also say this. It's something I got to meet Hillary during the election. Did you meet her too? I've I, met her before, not during okay, the election. Okay. So you can tell Hillary someone that's like, I, I want to be back in my office. I got work to do, yeah. guys. Completely. Let's do this whole, you know, do the speech and I got, I got work to do. So with that, they're not always great storytellers. And part of politics, part of entertainment, but part of politics is perception and storytelling. I think a lot of um, Democrats understand the perception part. I recognize that something that the Democrats can do is let their constituents be the storytellers. Then make your constituents do videos and talk about how legislation helped them. That's how we create a narrative. But I think as constituents, and I think a way that Mia and I will be able to help Democrats is to tell stories. It's fair that politicians who are great storytellers are usually the ones that win, right? Which is, you know, kind of unfortunate. It's kind of a, you know, I don't know. Well, Booker, but uh, Cory Booker is great. He does great. I met him and I was like, I was like, I get you. You are phenomenal. (laughs) No, you, you are amazing. He's charismatic. There was a video, a secret video where Corey was taping Hillary. He did. She didn't know. She was dancing. She didn't know he was taping her. She started (laughs) dancing towards him because that's what he does. He makes people go, Corey, what's up? But not, I don't require all politicians to be charismatic. Though I will say about this idea of charisma, that's also something that we talk about a lot more when we're comparing female and male politicians. And I will say, and this is a big divide, that there are people who have met Hillary, and and I'm one of them, and think she is the most charismatic person you could ever meet. Just amazing, and that I want to follow her and inspiring. I mean, I've heard Hillary speak um, about three times, and every time I was ready to follow her to the ends of the earth. I met her, and I didn't think that she was particularly charismatic, but I don't. I didn't need her to be. I just thought she was brilliant. Right. And to me, I was. I mean, this is a woman that can talk about foreign policy at a clip. You know, she can switch to any subjects and have a knowledge about that. That was what was important to me. Also, I've met some very charismatic sociopaths, so I don't care about (laughs) charisma. I like it in my actors, don't need it in my politicians. I want them to know policy. I want them to know that they can get something passed. I want them to be effective. I don't want them to lie to us in a massive way. They all fib a little bit. We all fib a little bit. We all fib a little bit. That's the thing is, too. It's like, I, I don't expect perfection in my politicians because I'm not perfect and I don't know a single person that is. And I would be scared to meet yeah. anyone who I thinks that they are. I might be distrustful of someone I would be who immediately seems too perfect. Like th- those are the people who you don't want to know what's hiding in their closet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mike Pence. <laughs> I'm scared. Scared of that guy. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> okay. So who does get your endorsement? So for one thing, we actually wrote this. Yeah, out. we've written this out. Um, I will say first that we're going to start endorsing candidates in 2018 in January. So we will definitely talk about platform, but we're not 
going to give names yet. But in terms of platform, <laughs> reproductive justice is, of course, very high on the list for us. That's, yeah. that's a non-negotiable. We would never endorse someone who didn't make that a priority. Um, we want politicians who are really focused on voting rights, who support automatic registration, who are aware of the problems with voter suppression. We want to endorse politicians who understand issues like Flint, who understand Understand that specific policy that can really help day to day problems. <laughs> we cover healthcare, economic, education, criminal justice, and voting rights. And all of those are very important. We want to make sure that obviously we're the American Women's Party. We really care about how all of these issues affect women, but we also care about how they affect other marginalized communities and helping women, helping other marginalized communities help everyone. The more people who have health care, the fewer people are a drain on taxes going to the emergency room. The more people who are educated, then the more people who are educated citizens for voting. So the American Women's Party really comes at these issues looking to make them more inclusive for women and other marginalized communities. But the effect of that is helping everyone. Great. American Women's Party is having Voter Empowerment Day Monday the 25th. Right. Is yes. there anything yes. that you want people to do to prepare for that or you want to say? Um, well, if you would like to participate on social media, for one thing, you can follow our Facebook page, our Instagram account and our Twitter account. The Facebook page is the American Women's Party. The Twitter account, is, the handle is the AW Party. So go to those pages, follow them and join the conversation by using the hashtag Voter Empowerment Day. If you want to go to an event, go to our Facebook page and we're putting up all the public events. And hey, there's still time to host one. So we can send you our materials and you can invite five friends over, have some wine and discuss voter suppression. Yeah, we give um, all the talking points. We give them all information about their state's voting laws. And we are actually supplying them with an extra piece of the latest in voter suppression news. We put a pamphlet together of what's just happened since Trump's been in office. And really all we want people to do is just show up. They can just show up to a party. They can go to our website. They can download all the material. You know, I think I have five friends. I think I have five friends and some wine. <laughs> <laughs> have them over for some wine and talk about voter suppression. Yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll send yeah. you we'll send you the pamphlets too. I mean, yeah. you can download them from our website, but we'll we'll send them yeah, to yeah, you too. Yeah, we'll send them to you. Yeah, yeah. That if you have an organization that you would like us to work with, or have one of your speakers speak at our event, you should reach out to us. If you are for some reason a representative Ooh. and you want to meet with me and Mia give us a call yeah. because we are going to go to DC and start meeting with we representatives. Are. Part of that, our next phase is we're reaching out to democratic leadership through emails, but we're going to also make appointments to just say hi to them. We know they're all very busy. We just want to introduce ourselves and, and let them know that we're there to support them. I would also say that Maya and I are here to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we know about a lot of things. We don't know about everything. If we've made a mistake, if we've... We're going to make mistakes. Yes, we're going to make lots of mistakes. Um, but hey, you're part of a community that we didn't represent perfectly. You have an issue that we've left out. Contact us. If you speak respectfully to us, we're going to listen to you. Absolutely. And we strongly encourage people to reach out to us. Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. Well, Maya, Mia, yes. Mia, Maya. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, everyone's going to have to use that. It's true. It's true. It's confusing. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. It's been really, really fun. It's been a true oh, pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate it.